Good morning, Church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, good morning to you in Fellowship 3. Uh, good morning to all of our friends watching online. Uh, it's nice to see everybody this morning. Uh, my name is Dennis McNutt. I uh, awkwardly broke my ankle playing frisbee golf, uh, which means I guess I've reached that age where even throwing a frisbee can be dangerous to me. So <laughs> it's coming. If you haven't reached that age yet, it's coming, I guess. I didn't think it would be. but uh, So good morning. Um, as I said, my name is Dennis McNutt. Uh, Mark is on vacation for a couple of weeks, so that's uh, exciting and good for him. Uh, and he has asked me to, to fill in these two weeks and do a short series on the Old Testament law as it relates and kind of illuminates where Mark has been taking us through the, the book of Romans. Uh, there's a lot of references in Romans to the Old Testament law, and I think what my goal is, and you can't really cover the whole law in two weeks, what my goal is is to give us a perspective of the law that helps us understand these truths that are being taught to us in the book of Romans better, to give us a perspective on it. Um, so this week, my goal is really to give us a big picture perspective of the purpose of the law and how that relates to Romans. And next week, we'll be going in and looking a little more at the content of the law and how that relates to the book of Romans. So that's my, my goal here this, uh, these two weeks. And I'd like to start us off with a little story. The first story I want to share is of, uh, is of a little boy. Now, so for, for some reason in my mind, when I tell this story of this little boy, I picture our executive pastor, John Van Drunen. We'll call him JVD for short. Uh, I picture a little JVD there, and uh, I guess his brother's with us uh, this week, um, so he can confirm whether he pictures JVD this way. Um, but here's the story of little JVD. He comes home from school, and mom tells him, go do your homework. And uh, she comes back a little while later to check on him, and he's not doing his homework. He's watching TV. Um, so his mom looks at him and says, uh, no, more, no TV until you're done with your homework. And so she comes back a little while and checks on him, and, and uh, he's not watching TV. Now he's playing with his tinker toys. And she's like, I thought I told you to do your homework. He, he said, well, you, you, you told me no TV until I do my homework. I'm not watching TV. I'm playing Tinker Toys. She says, all right, no more playing, no more entertainment at all, and don't do anything until your homework's done. So she comes back a while later, and she finds little JVD sitting on the couch not doing anything. And uh, she's like, why aren't you doing your homework? And he said, well, you told me not to do anything, so I can't open my book bag to get my homework out. I can't do my homework. Um, and so you see, as parents, I don't know if you've ever dealt with a little lawyer in your house, as JVD would grow up to be, um, but we as humans have this tendency, when we don't want to do something, the rules are not going to prevent us uh, or, or shape us, because the rules can't change our hearts. And that's no different for children as it is for adults. Um, I have a good friend of mine who uh, had, a, has a, had a government job, and at his government job, they decided to implement this new policy of a dress code. You had to wear collared shirts, no blue jeans, and no tennis shoes. So they, they, they wanted a professional environment. They in, uh, implemented these rules. Well, 
My buddy and his co-workers were not very happy about these new rules. They liked to go in more casually. And so, uh, in sort of in spite of the rules, my buddy goes out and he finds the most obnoxious uh, 70s purple shirt he can find with a collar with an ugly purple tie, these white polyester uh, pants, and, uh, and uh, purple uh, alligator shoes. Um, there's a picture of them there. And this is how now he goes to work is in the most, uh, you know, kind of thumb in your eye, you know, all right, you can make these rules, but you can't change my heart, um, sort of as a, as a, so we do this as adults. You know, this is the problem with the rules and with the, with the, the law. The law can never change our hearts. And I want us to look at that in the Old Testament a little bit. Um, and I want to look at it, we're, I want to give you a unique perspective from a historical standpoint through something called the, the Feasts of Israel. Now, in, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, God had laid out these seven holy days, um, these days throughout the year on a specific calendar days that Israel was to celebrate these things called the Feasts. And, and I don't have time to really get into detail on them, but I want to look a little bit at the four spring feasts. Um, and just kind of give you an overview before we get into the text. And it's, uh, it's in your handout and it's up on the screen right now. But the four for spring tea feasts, um, the first one was Passover. Now Passover they celebrated every year as a remembrance looking back at the original Passover when the uh, blood of the lamb was placed on the, uh, on the doorpost and lintel so the angel of death would pass over the homes and the, uh, and the firstborn of Egypt were killed. And so every year they celebrated the Passover looking back on that. And then they celebrated unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was to signify their separation, their bringing out from the land of Egypt. So they, they uh, had left in haste from Egypt. They left the old leaven behind in Egypt and now were brought out. The third feast was called the Feast of Firstfruits. And now this, this Feast of Firstfruits was a, a waving of the first fruit of the harvest, and it was to signify the giving of the, of the harvest by the Lord. It was an a assurance that the harvest would follow, that the harvest was the Lord's harvest. All right? And so then, uh, so they celebrate that Feast of Firstfruits, and it was on the day after the Sabbath in that Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they would count 50 days from there, and they would celebrate the fourth feast, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now this feast, or I'm sorry, the feast, I, I, we already did Unleavened Bread. So if they would count 50 days from the Feast of, of First Fruits, and they would come to the Feast of Shavuot, or, Penteco or uh, Pentecost. And then they would celebrate this feast by waving two loaves of daily bread uh, before the Lord. Now, I want to dive into that just a, a little bit because historically or traditionally, this Feast of Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And that's why I want to focus on that one a little bit. They would, they would remember the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, but it seems odd that they would raise these two loaves of daily bread. In our minds, we think of leaven, leavened bread as leaven signifying sin. And you may have heard it taught that way. But I want to change your thinking on that just a little bit. Leaven doesn't directly represent sin in the Bible. Leaven represents continuity with the past. 
All right? So in, in, in a home, the, the mom would bake her, before she baked the daily bread, she would pull out a lump of that and wrap it and set it aside. And that was the leaven that she would then take tomorrow and begin to make that next day's daily bread. And before she'd bake that, pull out the lump, lay it aside. And so for generations, you literally had the same leaven being passed from loaf to loaf, day to day, as a daily sustenance for your family's needs. Um, as a matter of fact, when, when the daughter would get married, the mom would pass on a piece of her leaven for the daughter to carry that forward into her home. This leaven would pass. And so God had commanded uh, Israel to leave that leaven behind, that they were now going to be disconnected from Egypt. It represented a break from the past. Now, when we get to the Feast of Pentecost, why is it that we raise leaven as an offering to God? We're not offering sin to God. That's not the point. What, the real question is, at the Feast of Pentecost, where, did, where does this leaven come from? We already cleared out the leaven, the leaven from Egypt. Where did this new leaven come from? Well, it came from the Feast of First Fruits. It came from this new provision that God had given them. Um, it was now the leaven that God had provided for their daily sustenance. And that is the key point. And remember now, this is the giving of the law. So with that perspective... I want, to, I want us to think of a couple of things. First, Passover and unleavened bread were what marked Israel's identity. The Old Testament law, the giving of the law, does not mark their identity. Israel was known as the people God had brought out of Egypt. Over and over again in the Old Testament, he reminds them, I am the God that brought you out from under slavery, brought you out from Egypt. This is what marked their identity. It was completely an act of God and His power and His provision and His grace. Israel does nothing to deserve that. God does it because he had made a promise to Abraham. God does it because he intervenes and he acts to bring them out of Egypt. And he reminds them that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And this is the chapter where God gives the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, this is how he introduces the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, this is who you are, Israel. This is what marks you as a people. This is your identity. You are the people I brought out of Egypt. So Passover and unleavened bread, when they looked back on the, on the placing of the blood on the lentils, it was that, and it was that unleavened bread that they would remember every year that this is our identity. This is what God did to bring us out from under slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And this is based on a promise, and it's grace. It's God's grace. He does the work. And that was their identity. Now we have first fruits and Pentecost. Now what were the, the points of those? This was now going to be the provision for their daily lives, their daily walk. This was now how they were going to fulfill the purpose that God has for the nation of Israel. Now, Exodus, right before he gives law, law, if you flip back a chapter to Exodus chapter 19, God tells them what the purpose of giving them the law was to be in the lives of the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then God goes on to give them the law. So what was the purpose of the law in the lives of Israel? It was as they kept these commandments and walked in these, uh, this law, it would set them apart as this holy nation. Their identity was already as the people of God that he had re- redeemed and purchased out of slavery. But now, in order them for, for, to fulfill this calling on their lives as a nation, to be a kingdom of priests proclaiming the excellencies of God to the surrounding nations, the law was going to be the rule of life, the daily life that they were to live out in order to be this holy separate nation that God was calling them to be. See, the law was never given to them as a means of righteousness for justification sense in the sense that it was to establish their identity as God's people. They were already God's people because of His promise and because of His work and His act of grace. That's what established them as God's people. But in order for them to fulfill the calling of being this kingdom of priests, this holy nation in the world, their obedience to this law was going to be required. Now, when God had given them this uh, law, God knows right out of the gate, Israel's not going to be able to do it. I mean, as Moses is reviewing the law in the book of Deuteronomy, he goes through the law again and preaches these last sermons. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 16 says this, the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after other foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I had made with them. See, God knows that they are not going to be able to, to follow up and become this kingdom of priests ministering to the world. And he knows this for a specific reason. And he's given them this law to show them what the specific reason is because we find out through other Old Testament passages we're going to look at shortly, God knows there is a, there is a deep problem within the heart of man. Their heart is far from God. Their heart is broken. They are sinful and separate from God. There is a heart issue in the heart of man. They're going to want to do what they want to do. They're not going to want to do what God's law demands and what God's law uh, commands. And so even in the book of Deuteronomy, God, God warns them of this and he promises to take care of this problem. Chapter 30, Deuteronomy, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. There's a prophecy that, that God is going to have to do something about the heart because it is the heart of man that is the issue. The commandment is good. The commandment is pure. The commandment is true. It was never a problem with the law. The problem was with the heart of man. They were not going to keep the law because they don't want to. You know, the same reason little JVD didn't keep the law. He didn't want to do his homework. You know, that, that is the problem in the heart of man, and God knows this. And so we get prophecies in the Old Testament, um, like in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 where God says this in verse 33, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, God knows the issue at hand is a, it is a heart issue. It is a sin issue within the heart of man that makes them far from him. 
They are his enemies. And the law now reveals that to the people. The law reveals that they see that their hearts, or they are meant to see that their hearts are far from God. They need, uh, they need God to do something within them. They need to be, in the New Testament terminology, born again. They need to be made new. They, they, the law cannot accomplish that for them. Um, Jer- uh, the book of Ezekiel chapter 11 says this in verses 19 and 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Later in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, notice... on these prophecies that God was going to do something new, that God had to fix a problem within the heart of mankind, giving them a new heart and the Spirit of God, it's always tied to the law. The law is what reveals that they need a new heart, that their hearts are far from God. The the law is what reveals that mankind is weak to be able to perform it. The law does not empower people to keep those commandments, even though the law is perfect and good. Mankind needs God to do something greater. Mankind needs for God to deal with this heart of stone, this sinful heart of mankind. So, Leviticus 23 and these feasts, back to that again for a second. God lays out these holy days as as a painting of the redemptive plan so not only was it looking back on israel's redemption from egypt and promise of uh, is to keep in a new land but it was also prophetic of the the ultimate redemption of man that god had in store and so 1500 years before jesus is born when god gives these specific days on the calendar to keep these holy days jesus goes to the cross on the day of passover becoming the passover lamb fulfilling the prophecy fulfilling the the very issue that has always been uh at stake in the book of leviticus chapter 23 So year after year, they're keeping the Passover. And then on Passover, Jesus goes to the cross, becoming the Passover lamb. And what does he accomplish on the cross? Why, the shedding of his blood. Redemption. A purchase price is paid to purchase people out from slavery. You see the picture from the Old Testament. The the blood of the lamb and the firstborn being killed, purchasing Israel out from Egypt. And so, if you turn to Romans, Romans chapter 3, Paul refers to this. Romans chapter 3, and we'll read verse 25. That Jesus was, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, now the sin of mankind, the very heart issue that separated mankind, is being paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross as he becomes the Passover lamb. Now, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus is in the tomb. 
He is now separated. There is a separation occurring as Jesus is buried in that tomb. Turn to Romans chapter 6, because this is what Paul's referring to us. He wants us to understand how important the burial of Jesus Christ is for us as believers. See, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, that, that blood on the cross now pays for our sin. Jesus going in the tomb, listen to what Paul says. For if you are a believer, this is what Paul says about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. Catch that last phrase. The burial accomplishes, if, as soon as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your identity is now locked into the identity of Jesus Christ as his body is buried in that tomb. Your old man is buried with it. It's, it's, it's the same as, as Israel coming out from Egypt and leaving their old leaven behind in Egypt. That which would, would sustain their daily life before is no longer present. They don't have leaven anymore. They need a new leaven now to be provided by God to provide their daily sustenance. And that's what Paul is saying is true of us as believers. When Jesus goes in that, into that tomb, we as believers, our old man, the old thing that would drive us, the old, the old uh, things that would, uh, the sins that enslaved us are now buried with him, and that is our old man. That identity is dead and buried and gone, and we are separated from it. Unleavened bread has been fulfilled. Feast of first fruits on the day after the Sabbath, what happens? On that actual day, Jesus walks out of the tomb alive, fulfilling the Old Testament feast of first fruits on the very day that God had prophesied in Leviticus 23. Jesus walks out of a tomb alive, becoming the first fruit of many brethren. And so now we have the assurance of the harvest to follow. What harvest? Our resurrection. Our resurrection is, is assured. And not only that, he has the assurance that he now has the power of life and death to give you eternal life. The first fruits has been fulfilled. Romans chapter 6 points us to this again. This is now our newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our identity is now rooted in the resurrection of Christ. The old man is now identified with the burial of Christ. And so now we walk in this new resurrected life that we have been given by Christ. That is now our identity. Whether we feel like it or we don't feel like it, whether we want it to be true or don't want it to be true tomorrow, our identity is now rooted in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, there were times where Israel in the wilderness, they longed to go back to Egypt. The way was closed. 
They were no longer slaves in Egypt. They had been purchased out from that. They were now the people that God had rescued from slavery in Egypt. That was their identity, and that could never be changed. So now what about, um, what about the final, the fourth feast of, in the spring, uh, Pentecost? Well, the resurrection of Jesus happens. Now we're counting 50 days to Pentecost. Jesus walks with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them. Now Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What does Jesus say before he ascends? He tells them to stay there in Jerusalem. Why? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Here's what Jesus is saying. Pentecost, which looked back on the giving of the law, which was weak to cause people to be the witnesses that God wanted them to be. Jesus is saying, I am going to fulfill it by the pouring out of my Holy Spirit on you, and you will be my witnesses. You will witness of my glory to, the, to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. So Jesus tells them Pentecost is about to be fulfilled. Stay here in Jerusalem. So if you remember back, turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. Now remember back in the Old Testament, when the law was given, there was this incredible display of God's power. God descends on the mountain and there's noise and there's light and there's lightning and there's fire and there's smoke. It's an incredible display. And the people stand back in awe and fear. Now what happens on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out? The very disciples become Mount Sinai. The disciples become the presence of God coming down upon them. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them as resting on each one of them. God's presence descends on them. They are now the fulfillment of Mount Sinai. God's presence is there now on His people. You know, when the law was given, if you remember back to this story, as Moses is up on the, law, uh, on the mountain, he comes down with the stone tablets. He knows that the people have already turned to idolatry. They've already built, uh, uh, you know, this gold stat, uh, uh, calf to worship. And so God gives them instructions on how to in, in deal with that. And, and the instructions he gives them is for the Levites to go through and kill people. How many people were killed? Exodus chapter 32 tells us. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men fell. 3,000 people were killed. The law comes down off the mountain, and it brings death immediately because the hearts of man are far from God. Now what happens on, on the fulfillment? What happens on the day of Pentecost when the giving of the law is fulfilled? The Holy Spirit comes down. Peter is empowered to be the witness of God. He goes out and he preaches and he proclaims the good news. And we have Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word and were baptized, there were added that day about how many people? 3,000. See, the, the Holy Spirit is given. Peter comes out and preaches and now life is brought to people. The fulfillment is here. The, the greater glory is here. 
Um, it brings life. It brings empowerment. The law was weak because it didn't empower people. It didn't change hearts. It revealed this need for a heart change. It revealed this need for God to do something greater. Now the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit fulfills that greater glory. The, the Holy Spirit comes and it, it empowers the, the disciples to be His witnesses. And as they witness, it brings life to people as they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So back to the book of Romans real quick. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. This, you know, when we think of these, the Old Testament versus the New Testament and what Paul is saying, you know, when we think of Jesus on the cross fulfilling Passover, He fulfills it. It's the greater glory. It's greater than the blood of the lamb on the lentils. The blood on the lamb on the lentils is, is, a, is a, a portrait, a painting. It, it, it's a shadow of what Jesus was going to accomplish. I hope none of you are going home every day and putting blood on the lentils of your door, sacrificing a lamb. Why don't we do that? Because Jesus went to the cross. He fulfilled that. The greater thing has come. And just like that, Paul says, we don't go back to the Old Testament law. It was weak. It could not accomplish what uh, bringing, making people the kingdom of priests. Why couldn't it accomplish it? Because it reveals the weakness of the heart of man. But what can comp uh, accomplish that? The very Holy Spirit of God present within you. Walking in the Spirit can accomplish that which the law never could. We have now the power to be, to fulfill God's purpose to be priesthood of God. The kingdom of priests that Israel was never able to do because it came without power. Now God's power and presence has come. Romans 7 verse 6 says this, it says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Here's what's significant about that. And I think we often mistakenly, in, in, when we think of the law, we think of the law as being as a contrast with the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection. But the Scripture never refers to it that way. The law is always contrasted with the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? Because the law was, its purpose was good and pure and true to make a people the kingdom of priests. But it was weak because the heart of man was broken. The Holy Spirit comes to fulfill that, to give you a new heart, a new birth, to make you that new creation that can now be His witnesses to the ends of the earth proclaiming the excellencies of this creator God. The, it is the Holy Spirit that is put in contrast with the law. See, the Pharisees misunderstood this too. They, they looked at the law as a means of justification. It was never given to man as a means of justification. It was given to man as a means of walking as, as holy people, separate and apart, to be witnesses to the world of God. That's what, what the purpose of it was. And the Holy Spirit now comes to fulfill that in us, the church of Jesus Christ. We now have the very power of God present within us to accomplish His purpose of being His witnesses, proclaiming this good news to the lost and fallen world around us, to bring life to people. The Holy Spirit of God fulfills this Old Testament law, what it was always pointing towards. 
And so in Romans chapter 8, when Mark comes back and he gets into that, we're going to see this theme, and, and that's why I wanted to kind of go through this with you. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says, God, what God, has, uh, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the, le- in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He conde- condemned sin in the flesh in order that, here's the purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit you see the holy spirit in us as we walk in the spirit it is the fulfillment of the law we're not under the law anymore because we have the holy spirit of god we have a new heart you know if little jvd had had a desire to do homework his mom wouldn't have had to put any rules on him about what tv shows he could watch or not watch you know, all right, it's okay. John can watch a little TV because I know his heart is desiring to do the homework. The law would not be necessary because his heart had been changed. And that's what every one of us need. And that's what God accomplishes in us through the giving of the Holy Spirit because the old man is dead and buried with Christ. The new man walks in newness of life with the Holy Spirit of God present within us. And we walk by the Spirit You know, Galatians, Paul says, are you so foolish? Do you begin by the Spirit? Do you then be perfected by the law? You're you're reversing the very revelation of God. Don't do that. We We don't put ourselves back under the law to somehow become perfect. We learn to walk in newness of life. We learn what it means to have heart change, genuine heart change, where we are learning to love the Lord our God and love others as ourselves because of what Christ has done for us. And next week, when we look at the content of the law, we're going to see that come to life even more. Uh, I'd like to just real quickly read out of 2 Corinthians. And if you want to turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm running short on time, so I'm not going to read the whole passage. But let's read, when you get home, read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and and keep this theme in mind. But right now, let's read verses 6 through 10. It says, Uh, Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. See, it's not that the law is bad. The law is good. The law reveals the heart of God. We study the law and we see the glory and we see the majesty and the beauty in it. But what is Paul saying here? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God so exceeds the glory of that Old Testament law that it comes as if it has no glory at all. That is how beautiful and how wonderful and how awesome it is what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. What Jesus has accomplished in our lives by giving us a heart of flesh through the heart of the Holy Spirit. Empowering us for a purpose. Empowering us for a purpose. And so in closing, I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. What purpose have we been empowered 
First Peter says this in chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, that is what we now have been empowered to do. And when we get it backwards and we think somehow the Holy Spirit has empowered me now to be this perfect person that doesn't, you know, and now I'm inward focused and I'm, I'm working on making myself a good, good and better and better guy. I'm missing the point. I'm missing the understanding of the fulfillment of Pentecost. God has now empowered me to be his priest to be a kingdom of priests, to be this nation. We, the church, we are now his kingdom of priests and we declare the excellencies of this God. I don't declare my excellencies. I declare his excellencies. I declare his gospel. I declare his glory. And we now have everything we need, believers, to do that. There's nothing that you are waiting for. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, your old man of sin is gone. You have been given a new life. You are made a new creation and you have been empowered by the very presence of God in you to be his priest, to be his minister, to bring life to a hurting and lost world around us. And so in all we do, Whatever it is we do, whether we eat or drink, whether we, when we vote, when we, when we see the world around us, when we interact with society, when we talk to our neighbors, we, our identity is we are the kingdom of priests that are ministering the good news of life to the world around us. And you have been empowered to do that because God's presence is in you and you have been made new and given the very resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you have accomplished on our behalf. It is indeed glorious. Father, I just pray every one of us that we would, Father, just behold the glory of what you have done for us, the glory of your death, burial, resurrection, the life you give us, your presence within us, the very Holy Spirit of God that you have made us new. Father, that we, the church, would rise up and be that kingdom of priests, proclaiming your excellencies. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and the incredible goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.